Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, Instead of telling you my story, I want to tell you somebody else's story here for a moment. This is a guy by the name of Tony Green. You probably not heard of Tony Green, or maybe you caught a small story about him in the media. It didn't make much of a splash, but I thought it was a pretty important story. Tony Green lives in Dallas, Texas. He's, you know, just your average guy, right? And he says, he actually wrote this for the Dallas Voice, which is a newspaper in Dallas. He said, I I admit I voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I admit traveling deep into the conspiracy trap over COVID-19. All the defiant behavior of Trump's more radical and rowdy cult followers, I participated in it. I was a hard ass that stood up for my God-given rights. He said, I believed that the virus was a hoax. I believed the mainstream media and the Democrats were using it to try to create panic, to crash the economy, to destroy Trump's chances of re-election. And so, believing the pandemic to be a hoax, my partner and I hosted family members on Saturday, June 13th. It's what, six weeks ago. And this is where the story gets real interesting. On Sunday, June 14th, I woke up sick, writes Tony Green. Imagine, he writes, gasping for air with every breath you take, with every step you take. Imagine rubbing icy hot all over your head to soothe a painful headache. Imagine your eyes in a bowl of water while you're still seeing through them. Imagine collapsing and waking up in the ER only to find out COVID-19 attacked your central nervous system and the doctor had just saved you from a stroke, writes Tony Green, a former Trump humper from Dallas, Texas. And then the story gets worse. Tony Green continues in his story. Two days later, see, he had had a family gathering, right? Because he didn't believe in COVID. He thought it was a conspiracy by Democrats to screw up the country so that Donald Trump wouldn't get reelected to blame it all on Trump. And so he invited his whole family over to his house and they all got together and they had a wonderful cookout and a nice day on Saturday, June 13th. Now, this is he's now we're talking about the time, you know, a few days later when he woke up in the hospital suffering from a stroke caused by the COVID. He continues. Two days later, my father-in-law's mother got sick. The new mommy and daddy got sick too. We all tested positive for COVID-19. Only the newborn was spared. My father-in-law and I both went to the hospital on June 24th. The virus had attacked my central nervous system and the staff stopped me from having a stroke. He continues, and now he's talking about his mother. As she lay in her hospital bed, 
in the room next door to his all alone and died. He says, on the day of her funeral, which was July 14th, five more of our family members tested positive for the virus. That evening, my father-in-law was put on a ventilator. Green continues, you cannot imagine the guilt I feel. You cannot imagine my guilt at having been a denier, at carelessly shuffling through this pandemic, my guilt at making fun of those wearing masks and social distancing. You cannot imagine my guilt at knowing that my actions convinced both our families that it was safe when it wasn't. This virus is real, Tony Green of Dallas, Texas writes. I am aware of how my bias could discredit me with some, but trust me, you do not want this virus. And you do not want your loved ones suffering and dying from this because you are taking a political stand or protecting the economy over their lives. Which brings us back to this absolutely brilliant email that I got from FreedomWorks. You know, keep America open. Barney, fake news CNN so-called experts are begging governors to shut down their states again. But it's not just CNN, it's the entire fake news media. Why is one of these groups that was funded by the Koch brothers that brought us the Tea Party? Well, I guess we all know the they're bullying America's governors, Barney, into adopting their closed-minded lockdown mentality. It'll put countless Americans out of work again, and America could slide into another Great Depression. Barney, I'm losing sleep at night thinking about that horrific nightmare becoming a terrifying reality. This is the email that I just got yesterday from Adam Brandon, the president of FreedomWorks. And Tony Green is one of the, I don't know if he got FreedomWorks email. I'm not sure whose emails he's got or what he was watching. It would be interesting to have a conversation with him and find out. Was he watching Fox News? I mean, what caused him to be a Trump humper in the first place? There are a lot of people who, you know, back when Trump was saying, you know, China's taking our jobs and China's doing this and China's doing that, who were saying, yeah, Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders have been saying that for decades. And so, you know, a lot of reasonable people said, well, you know, maybe he's a racist toad, but, you know, hey, if he's going to stop the hemorrhaging of our jobs, let's try him. I think the majority of those people are have defected, shall we say. They're no longer in Trump's camp, and that's the reason why you're seeing these, uh, the polling numbers that are coming out right now. But it's bizarre stuff. By the way, speaking of China, a month or so ago, we got a uh, packet in the mail from China. It was shipped from China, China Post, and had Chinese lettering all over the outside. And we opened it up. There was no invoice. There was no descriptive packaging of any kind. And inside was a little plastic baggie filled with seeds. And Louise and I are looking at this going, huh? Because we had bought some seeds recently. We bought, you know, some lettuce seeds and tomatoes. I mean, you know, we're growing a garden in our backyard and, and on our back deck. And we're like, what? What are these? And we couldn't figure out where did these come from? Well, it turns out people all over the country are getting these. And nobody knows why. The Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, VDACS, just issued a warning about this. They said Virginia residents are getting seeds in the mail from China that they did not order. And they're concerned that these are invasive species. Now, I lived down in Atlanta when kudzu happened back in the 80s. And kudzu was like eating the state. Kudzu was a Japanese plant that was brought to the United States by a botanist who was impressed by how rapidly it grew. He tried it out in his backyard or, or near his lab or something. It got into the wild. And now it's just destroying the ecosystem in the South. And nobody knows, are these kudzu seeds? Are these seeds of some other invasive species? Are they being sent to us as a form of biological warfare? Or is just, this just people who want to send you something so that they can fake a good review on some sort of, uh, you know, Amazon or something? Nobody knows. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is so totally weird. It's happened in uh, at least three states that we know of. Did you get seeds in the mail? Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Tom Harbin here with you. And I believe that uh, Mark Taylor Canfield is supposed to be with us right now. There he is. Hey. Mark Taylor Canfield in Seattle, uh, independent reporter. Mark, you've been showing up at the Seattle protest for a while. Tell us what's going on. Well, over the weekend, things got a little crazy. The police were back at using chemical agents and flashbang grenades and 40 millimeter rubber bullets. I picked up some of those shell casings. I think one of them may have hit me, and those are big, Tom, so you don't want to get those in the face. But yeah, there was a, a fire at the construction site for the new juvenile detention center, which is one of the uh, demands of the protesters here in Seattle is that they don't want that new justice center built. And it looks like King County Executive Dow Constantine is kind of echoing that same sentiment. So the trailers for the construction site were set on fire at 12th and Spruce. So that started a whole day's worth of crazy protests. Now, the march earlier that day was sponsored by a group called the Youth Liberation Front. I don't know much about them, but they claim to have chapters across the country. But there was some vandalism. There was a a fire and some broken windows at Starbucks. And then later, and also broken windows at, at some businesses. And then later, yeah, the police at the same area where the chop zone was opened up on protesters again with all these chemical weapons. Now, the Department of Justice had just filed for a temporary restraining order, and that was Judge Robarts, and he granted that just before the ban on these weapons was supposed to go into effect because the Seattle City Council had voted unanimously to ban tear gas, to ban rubber bullets and flash grenades and all of these devices. But the Justice Department intervened. So as of Saturday, they were able to use it. Now they're claiming that they're staying with an original preliminary injunction from a completely other case from a Black Lives Matter Seattle lawsuit against them, which is also trying to restrict the use of these kinds of weapons, this military-grade CS gas especially. They claim they're not using the CS gas, but Tom, I can tell you whatever they were using was really nasty. It burned my eyes and nose and hurt my throat and lungs for days. I couldn't see out of one eye for most of the day because of the pepper spray. So they're using it again, whatever auspices they, you know, or justification they want to use. According to the Black Lives Matters protest and that court order, they're supposed to restrict the use of those weapons um, to tar- specifically targeted groups of people or small groups of people, not using discriminately. But once again, they were pretty much just tossing it into the crowd like they do in Portland every night. And so we're back to, you know, tear gas, pepper spray and flashbang grenades as being the normal course of things in Seattle for protests. However, I can tell you that on Saturday there was another group of protests that ended up peacefully. But on Saturday there were over 40 arrests and some of them quite violent, which is really disturbing to me. I'm seeing that in Portland, too, and across the country where police tackle unarmed protesters and are very, very brutal with them. So that's the situation as of today here in Seattle, Tom. Mark, to what extent is there a debate going on among the people who are showing up to protest, particularly those who may be associated with organizations, you know, where there's some organization or system, about the wisdom of using violence and vandalism as opposed to using nonviolent protests the way that so many civil rights people did back in the day and do to this day? And to what extent might that nonviolent rhetoric have been co-opted by provocateurs, by right-wingers who are infiltrating and trying to provide the police with an excuse to come out and inflict violence on people? I really don't know how to answer that question because I don't have any, any evidence of that. I don't know what's going on. A lot of times there's not much information about these marches and protests before they start. Sometimes groups, I think it was last weekend, 
there was another group that joined the anti-ICE march a couple hours into it that then began breaking windows and causing damage. So I don't know who these people are. Nobody seems to know. The police weren't around when the property damage was happening. They only showed up later to attack mostly peaceful protesters at the original police line there at 11th and 12th and Pine, the same area where the chop has been. And by the way, there's still vegetable gardens there, Tom, and there are still... Some of the artwork has been preserved, so there is a sort of legacy still there at CHOP, and it's still being used as a center for protest. A lot of marches start there and gather there, and there have been daily marches in Seattle every morning and every evening since CHOP actually was supposedly dismantled. So now we're back to the same police lines again, and it seems like we're reminiscing of the three-week period when CHOP existed because we're at that same location near the east uh, precinct of the Seattle Police Department. Well, now that we've seen that, according to the Minneapolis Police uh, Umbrella Man, there was, there was no violence and no property destruction whatsoever in the George Floyd murder protests in Minneapolis until this white guy goes out and starts smashing windows at this auto shop. And the police now are saying that he's a, a biker with the Hells Angels, and he did it specifically to try to create racial strife. I would bet almost anything that that's going on in Portland and and Seattle. I'm curious if the wall of moms, wall of dads, and wall of vets that we're seeing here in Portland is being replicated in Seattle? Perhaps, but not that I know of. I'm not sure. The one thing I do know is that the West Precinct, which is actually closer to downtown, is now completely surrounded by a huge concrete wall. So I guess I can only assume there that the Seattle Police Department is seeing what's happening at the Justice Center in Portland and saying, well, we need something more permanent than a metal fence because you get enough people to push against it and you can actually bring it down. And you can see my views on all this actually at YouTube. I'm put up another longer documentary about what happened on Saturday today. Okay. Mark Taylor Canfield. You can check out his YouTube feed. Thank you, Mark. Good talking with you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So we have a new video up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Talking about language, how we use language. Language matters tremendously. And we have chosen as a society, as a culture, as media, as political leadership, et cetera, not to refer to people like Steve Mnuchin, who threw thousands of people out of their homes illegally during the banking crisis, as looters, not to refer to uh, Rex Tillerson, whose oil company has ravaged much of the third world, literally destroying people's lives, killing people, poisoning people. Uh, We don't refer to them as looters. Uh, we don't refer to the police who go into neighborhoods and kill people, minorities, uh, particularly African-Americans. We don't refer to them as looters stealing their lives. But when black people rise up and say, no, enough, we call them looters. There's something wrong with this. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. Well, Donald Trump Jr. has been banned from Twitter for 12 hours. He was it's a, it's a timeout, Don. Go to your room. Oh, jeez. What's he doing? Well, he and his dad, who was not banned, are uh, retweeting. There's a great graphic about this over at the top of Democratic Underground. Are retweeting a video by Dr. Stella Emanuel. Now, Stella Emanuel has in the past said that in her various videos that the U.S. government is run by people who are actually lizards who zip on their human suits every day when they go to work. That the federal government is funding scientific research to develop a vaccine that will stop people from being religious. That the federal government is currently using alien DNA as in outer space alien, for experimental medical treatments, that women who have gynecological problems have those problems because they are dreaming about having sex with demons and witches, and most recently that she has personally cured hundreds of people of COVID-19 with hydroxychloroquine. And of course, that last assertion was the one that got retweeted by Donald Trump Jr. and and Trump himself. It's bizarre. I mean, it's like the world just gets more bizarre every day, or the Trump administration, or these right-wingers, these Trump humpers. Every single day, it it gets weirder and weirder and more and more disturbing. The things that we have learned from example, you know, this National Guard officer, Adam DeMarco is his name, and he was uh, the liaison between the National Guard and the Park Police. Remember when they cleared the Lafayette Park across from the White House with tear gas and munitions and, you know, beating people who were there legally and peacefully? Well, he was the guy who was basically the liaison officer between the National Guard and, and the feds. And he has come out and said, you know, There are a few things you need to know about this. Number one, the city's curfew was at 7 p.m., and we cleared the park before that. And another thing he said is that when they gave the notice, they said clear the park. They didn't do it loud enough that most people even heard them. So people had no idea why tear gas and 40-millimeter projectiles were being shot at them, why they were being beaten with billy clubs and batons. They had no idea. He says that at around 6.20 a.m., after the Attorney General and General Milley departed Lafayette Square, that would be Bill Barr, the Park Police issued the first of three warnings to the demonstrators, to, and he says, I did not expect 
the announcement so early. He said that Bill Barr lied and said that this was being done in order to put up a barrier. They didn't even start working on that barrier until 9 p.m. No, this was for Trump's photo op. Bill Barr said that we gave people good warning. That was a lie, according to this officer, this National Guard officer. The protests were 100% peaceful. He corroborates that. Again, you know, Bill Barr and Donald Trump lied about this. He says, you know, Trump and Barr both lied and said there was no tear gas being used. Uh, DeMarco says, yes, it was CS tear gas, which is nasty stuff. I had that used against me when I was a teenager, when I, you know, when we were protesting the Vietnam War. And it's insane. I mean, you, you feel like you've lost control of your body. DeMarco said that there was extreme and excessive violence being used against peaceful civilians, which Trump and Bargain lied about. And he also said that, you know, when he came in with the National Guard, they had no idea that all these other federal agencies were going along with this. So anyhow, what, what if we were to simply say no more subsidies for corporations, period, full stop? By the way, the new Republican plan also includes a, uh, Trump apparently was personally responsible for this. What would a guy who owns hotels want from a bailout bill? They would want people to be incentivized to eat meals in their restaurants, right? And to stay in their hotels. And sure enough, Donald Trump and the Republican Party in this uh, new rescue bill coming out of the Senate are offering a tax deduction for companies that send their employees into restaurants to eat meals. Right. This is friggin' nuts. The other point that I want to make is that ever since the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic, the Republicans' price for unemployment checks and other benefits going to average working people has been several trillion dollars. Seven trillion of it coming out of the Fed, about three trillion of it coming out of the U.S. Treasury, several trillion dollars in tax breaks for billionaires and big corporations, grants, free money for billionaires and big corporations, and of course, you know, the money that the Fed put out. And now Republicans are saying, hey, we want to cut that $600 a week that you're getting right now, you know, 25 million unemployed Americans, we want to cut that $600 a week down to $200 a week. But we want to give immunity to corporate CEOs and big corporations when they make stupid decisions that cause people to die. That is the core and essence of Mitch McConnell's sales pitch. We need to provide corporate immunity and we need to cut the amount of money going to people. So the question that I would, you know, the the two questions actually that I want to ask is number one, what's it going to take to wake people up in America, the few that are not yet awoke, you know, <laughs> awakened, which would be you know, roughly a third of Americans if the opinion polls are proper, to wake Americans up to what the Trump death cult is all about. You know, keep in mind, the cult of fascism, whether it was the Nazis in Germany or the emperor worship in Japan, those cults were only shattered by losing a world war. It appears to me that Donald Trump is losing the war with the coronavirus. Will that be enough to break the hold of his cult? In the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. This is from the prologue, titled A New Door. Midway through the 20th century, two unusual new molecules, organic compounds with a striking family resemblance, exploded upon the West. In time, they would change the course of social, political, and cultural history, as well as the personal histories of the millions of people who would eventually introduce them to their brains. As it happened, the arrival of these disruptive chemistries coincided with another world historical explosion, that of the atomic bomb. There were people who compared the two events and made much of the cosmic synchronicity. Extraordinary new energies had been loosed upon the world. Things would never quite be the same. The first of these molecules was an accidental invention of science. Lysergic acid diethylamide, commonly known as LSD, was first synthesized by Albert Hoffman in 1938, shortly before physicists split the atom of uranium for the first time. Hoffman, who worked for the Swiss pharmaceutical firm Sandoz, had been looking for a drug to stimulate circulation 
not a psychoactive compound. It wasn't until five years later when he accidentally ingested a minuscule quantity of the new chemical that he realized he had created something powerful, at once terrifying and wondrous. The second molecule had been around for thousands of years, though no one in the developed world was aware of it. Produced not by a chemist, but an inconspicuous little brown mushroom, this molecule, which would come to be known as psilocybin, had been used by indigenous peoples of Mexico and Central America for hundreds of years as a sacrament, called Tioanatical by the Aztecs, or Flesh of the Gods. The mushroom was brutally suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church after the Spanish conquest and driven underground. In 1955, 12 years after Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD, a Manhattan banker and amateur mycologist named R. Gordon Wasson sampled the magic mushroom in the town of Huajalta de Jimenez in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. Two years later, he published a 15-page account of the, quote, mushrooms that cause strange visions, end quote, in Life magazine, marking the moment when news of a new form of consciousness first reached the general public. Parentheses, in 1957, knowledge of LSD was mostly confined to the community of researchers and mental health professionals. People would not realize the magnitude of what had happened for several more years, but history in the West had shifted. The impact of these two molecules is hard to overestimate. The advent of LSD can be linked to the revolution in brain science that begins in the 1950s when scientists discovered the role of neurotransmitters in the brain. That quantities of LSD measured in micrograms could produce symptoms resembling psychosis, inspired brain scientists to search for the neurochemical basis of mental disorders previously believed to be of psychological origin. At the same time, psychedelics found their way into psychotherapy, where they were used to treat a variety of disorders, including alcoholism, anxiety, and depression. For most of the 1950s and early 60s, many in the psychiatric establishment regarded LSD and psilocybin as miracle drugs. The arrival of these two compounds is also linked to the rise of the counterculture during the 1960s and perhaps especially to its particular tone and style. For the first time in history, the young had a rite of passage all their own, the acid trip. Instead of folding the young into the adult world, as rites of passage have always done, this one landed them in a country of the mind few adults had any idea even existed. The effect on society was, to put it mildly, disruptive. Yet by the end of the 1960s, the social and political shockwaves unleashed by these molecules seemed to dissipate. The dark side of psychedelics began to receive tremendous amounts of publicity, bad trips, psychotic breaks, flashbacks, suicides. And beginning in 1965, the exuberance surrounding these new drugs gave way to moral panic. As quickly as the culture and the scientific establishment had embraced psychedelics, they now turned sharply against them. By the end of the decade, psychedelic drugs, which had been legal in most places, were outlawed and forced underground. At least one of the 20th century's two bombs appeared to have been diffused. Then something unexpected and telling happened. Beginning in the 1990s, well out of the view of most of us, a small group of scientists, psychotherapists, and so-called psychonauts, believing that something precious had been lost from both science and culture, resolved to recover it. Today, after several decades of suppression and neglect, psychedelics are having a renaissance. A new generation of scientists, many of them inspired by their own personal experience of the compounds, are testing their potential to heal mental illnesses such as depression, anxiety, trauma, and addiction. Other scientists are using psychedelics in conjunction with new brain imaging tools to explore the links between brain and mind, hoping to unravel some of the mysteries of consciousness itself. One good way to understand a complex system is to disturb it and then see what happens. By smashing atoms, a particle accelerator forces them to yield their secrets. By administering psychedelics in carefully calibrated doses, neuroscientists can profoundly disturb the normal waking consciousness of volunteers, dissolving the structures of the self and occasioning what can be described as a mystical experience. How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, 
all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. And welcome back. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's up? Tom, I just want to let you know that, you know, John Lewis is the only congressman who has a six naval ship named after him. Are you aware of that? I didn't know that. Yes, yes. USS John Lewis. There are six of wow. them. One of them is already up. Yeah, they're in the, one of them already in service. Uh, he's such a great man. Uh, he's just he's an honorable man. Talk about someone who's honorable. Uh, what I want to talk about, Tom, is... The issue of the 12th Amendment is a serious question. It's an important question, and it's a valid question. And I was not happy with the response that we got from the member of the establishment. I think the 12th Amendment is going to be Trump's nuclear option. It's going to be his last resort, you know, which is going to activate once everything else fails. So we must prepare for it. And the whole notion that counting on many people showing up and voting, and it's just not. It's just like saying shoot several basketballs and one of them might go in. Well, no, Omar, what Perez was saying, and he, he didn't say it quite as clearly as this, and I agree with it. And this, by the way, is what Mary Trump has said, you know, referring to the psychology of her uncle, is that mm-hmm. if the Democrats win absolutely overwhelmingly, then even if you've got a few states that are going, well, we don't know, we can't, you know, blah, 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 it will be undeniable. If it's an absolutely overwhelming, crushing, blowout, you know, like Nixon versus McGovern. You know, McGovern, I think, carried one or two states. If that's how it plays, then Trump has no 12th Amendment option. And that's what Tom Perez is committed to working to. So it wasn't so much that he was like dismissing my conspiracy theory, although there was, I think at a certain level he was. It was rather he was saying, we think this is how it's going to play out instead of how you think it's going to play out. And he may well be right, and I hope he's right. But I think that they need to have a plan B. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. But thinking, I mean, I mean, we have an this is we in an unprecedented time. Overturning the norm of pro-American system was a campaign promise, and Trump has fulfilled that promise. He turned the whole system upside down. And for him just to say, I think, no, we cannot trust Trump. I mean, he's plan- he, I guarantee you right now, he has a plan in progress right now to do that. He probably talked to some of the governors. But all I'm saying is that we have to have a plan to deal with the issue of the 12th Amendment. It's an important question. It's a serious question. And the Democrats have to have a strategy. He cannot just trust his president. He has to be ready 100%, because if he wins again... So goes the country as we know it. Well, one of the strategies that they could pursue, Omar, is to identify those states that right now have a majority of Republican legislators and thus would vote for Trump under the 12th Amendment scenario. And I believe that all they would have to flip is four or five states and identify those states, particularly smaller states, where you could pour an enormous amount of money in and actually change the, the state congressional races. So that those states end up with majority Democratic legislatures, even if it's only one house, if, it's, if the total is majority Democratic, that blows up the strategy. That would have, you know, that's, that's the only way that I know to do it. Omar, thanks for the call. It's good to hear from you. Tom Harbin here with you and Craig in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. Hey, Craig, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I'm calling about as the results of the election and all the talk about how people are gaming out different scenarios of what could happen if Trump wins and so forth and so on. But one thing I don't hear people talking about is if Trump wins the election, which is not good, of course, but what if the Democrats take the Senate, though? Wouldn't that be a worst-case scenario for Trump? Yeah. <laughs> if, if both the House and the Senate were controlled by the Democrats and Trump got reelected or got elected, he was never elected in the first place. He was put into place by the loophole, the Electoral College loophole. The majority of Americans rejected him, just like they rejected George W. Bush in 2000. Um, but if he was to get back into office again through by hook or crook and the Democrats control the House and Senate, then, there, you know, there'd be a really good chance that uh, he could actually be impeached and removed from office. And in fact, I think that they would go back at it really rapidly. Craig, thanks for raising the question. An interesting one. You know, it's like we're all going through these scenarios in our heads. Richard in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, Richard, what's up? I just called to make a comment about what I truly believe is T. Rump's ulterior motives. And that is that, like his father, he is a Klansman. And that explains the way he talks and the way he feels. And I'll get off the air right now. Thank you. Okay. You know, I agree with you, Richard. I, you know, I don't think he's necessarily an official member of the Klan, you know, like David Duke or Steve Scalise. You know, Steve Scalise, the Republican, when he was running for Congress in Louisiana, he said that he was David Duke without the hood. Right. And I think that that's Donald Trump. He's like Steve Scalise. Harry in San Rafael, California. Hey, Harry, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Always an honor to listen to you, let alone talk to you. I'm as old as you are, a little old. Actually, I agree with everything you say, seeing the history of the country. Actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Jeff McDaniels. There's a show called Newsroom. In the first episode, he gives this litany. Somebody asked him about why is America so great? He was at a college uh, graduation, and he went through this litany of why America was not so great. Oh, that was that was a brilliant soliloquy. It was absolutely brilliant. Yes. I remember that yes. when that came out, what, three years ago or thereabouts? Exactly. It's still on the Internet. You can find it. But uh, I had a question. Anyway, what I was wondering is if the mayor of Portland was able to move the demonstrators to a place away from the federal property, you know, just say, hey, listen, go over here, guys. These thugs would have mm-hmm. no jurisdiction. And then the city right. and state could arrest them and take any kind of action against them that they wanted to because they wouldn't have any power left. And I don't see why, you know, the, the mayor doesn't say something like that. Just get away from this area. Well, first of all, there's two problems with that, Harry. The first one is that the protesters are not basically doing what the mayor says, period, full stop. Anyway, you know, all yeah. along he's been saying, stop the violence. You know, it's OK to protest, but don't don't destroy things. Don't, you know, et cetera. And then secondly, you know, once the feds leave the federal building and the area immediately adjacent to it, which is arguably federal property, and travel onto the streets of Portland, they have put themselves in a position where they are subject potentially. I mean, there's, there are debates about this, but I think the, the broad consensus among legal scholars is that they can be arrested by the city police. 
And uh, here in Portland, our mayor has chosen not to take that path. He does not want to have what could become a violent confrontation with these uh, contractors and goons or whatever they are, you know, uh, the secret, you know, Trump's secret police. And I understand that, you know, I get it. We're a little tiny town. We don't have many resources. And the other problem he may well have is that the Portland Police Bureau, our police union, had actually reached out to the federal government and said, you know, come on in, we'd love some help. And apparently they're doing the same thing in Seattle and Chicago. So a lot of this violence and a lot of this outside instigation is done, if not at the prompting of police unions around the country, certainly with the approval, enthusiastic approval of them. And so the the mayor then would be in a position where he, who is also the police commissioner here in Portland, who would have to then take on his own police department. And I don't think any mayor wants to be in that position. There's a lot of reckoning that, that has to happen when this is over. But for right now, no. Okay, because they're already sort of doing it. The police chief's taking on the police unions. And I mean, I just I think that demonstrators would appreciate that saying, listen, don't give Trump what he wants. Move away. Like you say, though, that is an issue if the police called in these guys and say we want to give power to them. I don't know what they can do, though, but I think the mayor and city council might have more jurisdiction than the police in that sort of, you know, um, field. They might curtail them. I, I have no idea, but you would think something could be done like that just to take that main thrust away from Trump as far as being their federal property. Then what can he do? Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. We'll see how it all shakes out in January. I mean, that's that's where we have to go with this. You know, right now, we have a fascist in the White House and a fascist running the Department of Justice. And welcoming foreign interference into our elections. That's why I worry. Oh, and apparently, you know, welcoming foreign governments killing our soldiers. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Gary, thank you for the call. I got to move along. But Gary in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Gary, what's up? Hey, greetings, Tom. Uh, Doubling back to this uh, provocateur, Hell's Angel. Back in 1937, a great book was written, The Labor Spy Racket, and uh, Senator LaFollette hearings laid out how the munitions companies were infiltrating the unions, getting them all ginned up about going to a demonstration and then running over to the corporations and saying, hey, there's going to be trouble. You have to buy your munitions from us. So I'd like to know what munitions companies are profiting from these demonstrations. Right. Try uh, Smith and Wesson and Winchester. And I absolutely get your point. Thank you. Kirk in uh, Houston says you want to disagree with me, Kirk. What's up? Well, I do disagree on the, the notion that the Electoral College is a loophole because we all know that the Constitution was ratified by the states with that system in place to elect the executive branch. Therefore, to protect against exactly what you're talking about, the, the bigger cities, you know, decreasing the amount of influence the smaller states have. So how is that a loophole when that's the only system we have? The Electoral College was put into place in large part because it took three days for a mail carrier on horseback to transport news or mail from southern Georgia to Washington, D.C. And candidates for federal office, specifically for president of the United States, there's no way that they could travel the distance that would be necessary to campaign all around the country. So the idea that they came up with was, we'll put together, and this is based, by the way, on the Iroquois Confederacy. They had this group of, of people called Sachems who would travel and basically share the news once a year, and they'd have this big annual meeting. And it was based on that, on the fact that there just wasn't time to get the news. So, so you had to have these wise elders who would go to Washington, D.C., they would meet with the candidates, and if somebody was to probably badly paraphrase the July 1787 Philadelphia debates on this at Constitution Hall. I think it was George Mason who was talking about, although it might have been Hamilton, who was talking about, well, what if one of the presidential candidates is a man of low morals or a drunkard? How would somebody in Georgia know that? Well, you send your electors, your electoral college people who have the ability to cast their vote even over the defiance of the people back home, you send them to D.C. to meet with these people and they would filter them out. That is absolutely no longer necessary. A loophole, virtually by definition, Kirk, is some small clause in a contract or an agreement or whatever that allows something to happen that is not the broader intent of that agreement. You know, you buy a car, you know, and there's a loophole that says the car company can take it back if you drive it more than 10,000 miles a year or something, you know, some lease thing or whatever. You know, it's probably an imperfect example, but we all know what the hell a loophole is. And the loophole in our Constitution is if the vast majority of Americans, or even a simple majority of Americans, 
vote for somebody for president, you may not end up with that guy as president. And this happened in 2000 when Al Gore won the election by 500,000 votes. And this happened in 2016 when Hillary Clinton won the election by 3 million votes. And in both cases, the loophole left over from the days when we didn't have national newspapers or electronic media, that loophole of the Electoral College was used. And the Republicans have been consistently and aggressively fighting every effort to do away with it, which, in my opinion, should prove to you that it's a loophole that they fully intend to make use of. And it's something that we need to do something about. There is a, uh, a group, an organization called National Popular Vote. Their website is nationalpopularvote.org. And the, what the deal is, you get, you've got states all over the United States. So far, it's nothing but Democratic states, nothing but blue states. But you've got states that are saying, whoever wins the national popular vote, we will give our electoral votes to regardless of how our state votes. So that the winner of the national vote becomes president. And they need four or five more states to sign up for that. It's a really important thing. Check it out at nationalpopularvote.org. Tom Hartman. Pick up your calls right after this. In this week's science revolution, concerning news that we may have hit a tipping point for methane in the Arctic, Professor Richard Wolf drops by to discuss a pandemic tax to help fund the COVID-19 recovery for the common good. Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear visits to connect the FBI raids of the Ohio House Speaker to the billion-dollar bailout of two very dangerous age-degraded nuclear power plants. And in Geeky Science, there's a new study out about how sitting confuses your body's fat or fit system. Find the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Beverly in Los Angeles. Hey, Beverly, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for everything you do. I, I love your show. Well, thank you for watching. I don't know. <laughs> well, every day. At any rate, I don't know if this was brought up before, but Trump had sent out tweets prior to the rally in Tulsa. And I don't think it was a coded way, and I don't have the tweet in front of me, but he was asking for his Proud Boys, his Boogaloo Boys, his, I call them pro-Nazis, you know, to show up and to, he didn't use the term bring their guns, but the term rather, you know, uh, use their Second Amendment and, you know, telling them to show up and cause trouble. And they did show up in force, as a matter of fact. They actually showed it on, I was watching it on uh, my cable station. And at any rate, the police, they were trying to get near the protesters to start a ruckus. Mm -hmm. But the police, right. thankfully, you know, did make them move along, you know, and told them they couldn't be in there with those large, they had those large AK-47 whatever type of guns. Yeah. And the only other thing in reference to this sort of thing was that I do wish if when the Democrats do make an ad again, and I listen to some of their ads on Ralph Nader, thankfully we have that Lincoln group to do ads. But there's footage of a woman trying to stop uh, protesters or whomever, you know. It looked to me like Boogaloo Boys with those Hawaiian shirts trying to, like, break into this storefront, break the windows out with hammers, etc. And she, like, threw Where was that, Beverly? Like, this was in Milwaukee, when the, right shortly mm -hmm. after, this happened shortly after the death of Mr. Floyd. She right. she threw herself in front, trying to stop the looting and the breaking of the windows and all that that was happening maybe a couple weeks after Mr. Floyd was murdered. And this guy with the Hawaiian shirt just grabbed her really hard and threw her onto the ground, onto the concrete. And I don't know who to contact to uh, talk to about their the quality of their ads. They're just not as good as the ads that either Lincoln Group put out or the Republicans put out. Yeah. You know, although they lie in their ads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the Lincoln Group's ads have been pretty solid, and now they're going after Republican senators, which seems like a good thing. I've been really wanting to have a conversation with a Republican about, you know, how does the party reinvent itself? 
Time will tell. Uh, yeah. I also have some thoughts on your comments, Beverly. I'll share them right after the break. Beverly, thanks so much for the call. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Shadowlands, a new book by Anthony McCann, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. This is from Chapter One. My dear friends, Ammon Bundy began and begins again and again every time somebody hits play from 2016 all the way to the end of the Internet. It was the first day of a year that was to scramble an already agitated nation. Along the invisible pathways of the collective mind, the virtual tabernacle of the World Wide Web, Ammon Bundy, cowboy prophet and Facebook hero of liberty, was calling his people to the desert. Soon his friends in what they called the Patriot Movement were all hitting play, activating his familiar face, and sitting back in the glow of their screens as Ammon filled their hearts with urgent feeling. It was time, Ammon was saying, for what he called a hard stand. There had been some confusion about what he'd meant in previous communiques. He'd received some pushback, and he'd sat down now on the eve of calamity in front of the camera to try and clear things up. He's at his desk in a cowboy hat. He wouldn't appear in public much again without one until his arrest weeks later on a mountain road in the snow and pines of Oregon's Hard Luck National Forest. He's wearing a checkered western shirt and sporting what was for him a new, neatly trimmed growth of beard, further softening his visage. But even with a beard, Emmon Bundy couldn't help seeming what he was, a Latter-day Saint, clean-cut to the core. The strongest word I or anyone I know has yet heard him use is creep or hell. Or once, with evident discomfort and while making it clear he was quoting someone else, horse S-word. Before being summoned to the desert of Oregon by his god, that fall he'd been enjoying making apple pies for his Idaho neighbors, using apples from his new orchard and delivering the pies himself. But the quiet idyll of that autumn was already long over. This was to be his last video address to his online community before leading the very next day an armed takeover of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. A MacBook Air laptop is open on his desk, its icon doing its quiet, intrepid work to place all our American lives and dreams, even those of right-wing holy insurrection under its sign. Pale winter light comes through the blinds of the windows behind him. In the video, which he titled Dear Friends, Ammon explains how it was God who had guided him to Oregon two months earlier through news of the plight of two Harney County ranchers, a father and son, Dwight and Steve Hammond. Mandatory federal sentencing guidelines were about to send the Hammonds back to prison for arson charges stemming from fires on public lands, charges for which they'd already served time. Others, including his own father, had been urging him to look into the story. Like the Hammonds, Ammon's father, Cliven, was also a rancher. The Bundy family had achieved a national profile for the dramatic culmination of their 20-odd years' struggle with federal authorities over their grazing rights on Mojave Desert lands in southern Nevada. That conflict had come to a head in April of 2014 in a remarkable event, an armed standoff with federal agents that had resulted shockingly in a seeming victory for the Bundy clan. This standoff and the family's ongoing struggle with the aftermath of their life-changing actions had felt like enough to Ammon who had recently moved far from southern Nevada to a new home with his wife and six children in the sagebrush of southern Idaho, on the far northern end of Mormon country, on the outskirts of Boise. He himself was not even a rancher anymore, had not been for years. He ran a trucking fleet maintenance business, still headquartered in Arizona. As it turned out, even that move to Idaho would come to seem, to Ammon, a part of God's larger plan for himself, his friends, Harney County, and America. There had been something a little strange about the move, even at the time. He and his wife Lisa had felt a strong, simultaneous urge to relocate. It had been a feeling that had descended as if from nowhere. They couldn't understand it entirely, but they had followed it anyway and headed out in the spring of 2015, traveling about the Intermountain West looking at houses. Nothing had been quite right. But then on the very last day of their trip, they'd come to this very last house in a beautiful valley in Emmett, Idaho, and had known instantly that this was their place. It was one of many decisions Ammon would be guided to that year. That guidance to Ammon's mind had all been providential. How else to explain that he'd ended up moving to within three hours of remote Harney County, Oregon, where the whole Hammond story, which he had known nothing about at that time, had taken place. And now, here he was, just a few months later, barely settled into his new home, asking his online community to join him in Oregon. 
to take a momentous stand, a stand so big, he said, that nothing less than the future of American freedom might be at stake. After the move to Idaho, his next big revelation had come late one Monday evening on November 2015. On January 1st, seated in front of his camera, he told the tale of that night to his online followers. Lying in bed in his family's new home, tired after a long day, he'd received a message on his phone, a link to yet another article about the Hammonds. In the past, he'd shrugged off messages about the case. I felt that our family was fighting hard enough, he explained. We didn't need to go fight somebody else's battles. But this time, something was different. An urge quickly took possession of him, a sudden impulse to learn all he could about the Hammond family. He searched the internet and read everything he could find about the case. Unable to sleep, he read on Into the Dawn. The book is Shadowlands by Anthony McCain. So I, I had a caller a few minutes ago who was talking about how it seems that Donald Trump is trying to incite violence, that, that when he went to Tulsa, he was asking the Second Amendment guys to show up and, and that, you know, there was kind of a standoff that was, did not turn violent because the police got themselves in the middle. And, you know, that was a good thing. And the point that I would make about that is that Donald Trump is constantly talking about Abraham Lincoln and what a great president Abraham Lincoln was. Now, Lincoln was the first Republican president, so you know there's a little bit of that. But Lincoln was the president during a civil war, during a time in America when Americans were killing other Americans, when people were literally shooting and slitting the throats of their neighbors of a time when essentially murder, you know, sanctioned by the rules of war, but murder had become a way of life. And, you know, over 600,000 Americans were killed in that war, not to mention the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of others who were impoverished by the war, whose families were torn apart by the war, whose lives were destroyed by the war, who were injured, maimed, wounded, left blind or deaf or without a leg or an arm for the rest of their lives by that war. That was Abraham Lincoln's time in office, shall we say. And I look at that and I listen to Trump deifying Abe Lincoln. And I wonder, does Trump think that Lincoln was great because he was the president during a civil war? Does he think that the path to presidential greatness is to have a civil war and be the president when it's happening? Is he like, you know, Congressman Steve Scalise, who campaigned as David Duke without the hood? Is he taking the position that maybe we should have another civil war, only this time maybe the racists should win instead of lose? I don't know the answer to those questions, but they trouble me. They trouble me deeply. Todd in Aurora, Colorado. Hey, Todd, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks so much. I was wanting to sort of think back in 2016 when we had far-right protesters in Oregon, and we had the Oath Keepers, if you remember, and Richard. Right, and the Bundy, and and the Bundy boys, yeah. Yeah, and you remember how they were always uh, saying to stand down, have the federal troops need to stand down, Where are these guys now when we have federal troops that really have no authority, you know, inciting violence and and really trampling down on our rights? That that Malher, or Malther, however you pronounce it, that federal refuge, you know, it's basically a wildlife refuge that they seize control of is right on or right next to or near, very near to the border with Idaho. And uh, Idaho is a real, uh, in particular northern Idaho, a real hotbed for hardcore right-wing violent extremist types. And that's where Eamon Bundy was. And it's also uh, filled with Mormon uh, violent extremists, which is what the Bundys are. They're Mormons and they're also, you know, of that kind of inclination. So they seized that property, the wildlife refuge. They trashed it. That's a federal building. They trashed it. They left feces in it. I mean, it took, you know, a long, long time to clean up the mess. And they defied federal officers with guns, but there was never violence used against them. 
I think you can make right. a very, very strong case that what they did against that wildlife refuge was far worse than what's been done against the federal building here in Portland, Oregon. And that said, where is Eamon Bundy now? Well, a couple of days ago, he was leading an anti-masking march in Idaho. I might be mixing these up. There was this thing called the Million Man Anti-Mask March, and 125 people showed up. And I'm pretty sure that that was the one that Eamon Bundy was leading. If not, it was something very, very similar to that. So he's out there promoting these conspiracy theories, you know, like the ones that, you know, Donald Trump Jr. have been tweeting and retweeting and things, you know, basically saying that uh, it's all it's all some kind of giant anti-Trump conspiracy. So that's what's going on. Todd, thanks for the call. I mean, it really is hypocritical, right? I mean, either you're concerned about the federal government overreaching its power and sending its jackbooted thugs into your cities, or you are not. Anyhow, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you to participate, indeed. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Say something nice to somebody. Acknowledge them. See you You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.